to chapter five of the mask by florence irwin this librivox recording is in the public domain another invitation that she was loath to accept did alison presently receive it was to take tea in mrs shapleigh's uptown flat only the fact that she had thrice refused similar ones induced her to accept this moreover mrs shapleigh pleaded that she herself was on the eve of leaving for a southern resort and might not be able again to see dear mrs howland for quite a while assured of this mitigating fact alison permitted herself to be persuaded into an acceptance she was asked for four o'clock but she hadn't an idea of the distance nor of the length of time the trip would take she therefore arrived very late and after the rest of the guests were assembled the apartment-house was a very showy one and an exceedingly correct maid admitted alison to the shapleigh's flat the moment she entered her nostrils were assailed with a heavy perfume it was a combination of gardenias american beauty roses and incense about twelve women were seated around the small drawing-room and alison was surprised at the empressement with which they all greeted her she little dreamed what a clever advance agent her hostess had been i was just at the point of giving you up dear mrs howland purred that hostess sit down and let me pour you some tea wait until i make you a fresh cup here are some sandwiches to nibble on in the meantime this will be ready in a moment alison had never seen her so gorgeous nor so beautiful her grey chiffon tea-gown was bordered with ten-inch bands of chinchilla and girdled with a heavy silver rope which ended in huge swinging tassels a silver fillet bound her brow and her hands were loaded with rings the general conversation was a surprise to alison it was exclusively concerned with the doings of smart society weddings theatre parties opera dances who wore what and who sat where mrs shapleigh's friends were expensively dressed in the height of fashion but not for one moment did they give the impression of being to the manner born and granting that a large portion of smart society is not to the manner born there was still a certain intangible something about these women that marked them as outsiders alison was almost sure that they didn't know the people they discussed so eagerly their very eagerness was suspicious in itself so too were the frequent disagreements as to whether such and such a person really were mrs this or miss that and they constantly used the words society leader have you seen your cousin mrs bleecker gansevoort lately mrs howland asked the hostess handing alison her cup of tea why didn't she say mrs bleecker ten eyck gansevoort thought the girl wickedly what an opportunity to neglect but at least she didn't miss the relationship aloud she was replying yes we dined there not long ago everyone looked up in interest and mrs shapleigh continued oh indeed and were the billy mortimers there alison very much amused gave the desired answer mrs mortimer is so chic isn't she broke in one of the guests i love the way she does her hair she looked gorgeous at the opera on monday night she was in white pan velvet heavily embroidered in silver one of the most beautiful frocks i've ever seen what did she wear at your dinner mrs howland pink satin i think it was 
but it might have been yellow they looked so much alike at night no it is pink i've seen her in that frock the little sleeves were gathered to look like rose petals weren't they alison admitted that they were i think said a woman who had not yet spoken i think kathleen mortimer is the swellest woman in the young married set she has so much class and she's so exclusive they say you can't make an inch of headway with her unless she wants you to you know chappie lawrence and tony warren were both crazy to marry her is it true mrs howland asked another woman that mrs gansevoort serves her cocktails in whiskey glasses alison burst out laughing i'm afraid you'll think me terribly ignorant she admitted but i don't know cocktail glasses from whiskey glasses these were long-stemmed glasses with wide shallow bowls oh just the regular cocktail glasses said her questioner but it took all of alison's prestige as cousin of mrs gansevoort and mrs mortimer to keep her from losing caste by this frank admission and so the intellectual talk rolled on when alison rose to go a mrs wolf immediately insisted on driving her home my car is waiting she announced it will give me great pleasure but i live so far downtown it is very sweet of you but i hate to take you so much out of your way mrs wolf repeated that it would be a pleasure and that the distance was nothing in a car so alison yielded she would much rather have gone home alone but she didn't quite see how she could manage it mrs wolf seemed to be more devoted to mrs shapley and more intimate with her than any woman there she called her dearest madeline and fawned upon her to such an extent that alison was sure that a warm friendship must exist between them mrs shapley clasped alison's hand closely at parting when i come back you must ask me to tea some day with mrs gansevoort and mrs mortimer she smiled good-bye dear mrs howland come and see me as soon as i return the wolf limousine stood waiting and the moment the two women were seated mrs wolf began to talk mrs shapley is very beautiful isn't she she said oh very indeed agreed alison it is such a rare type have you ever seen her husband yes we all lived in the same house for a little while well isn't he a fool a fool oh i don't think so don't you i do how can any man believe the dope that madeline shapley gives her husband do you know what his income is of course not well i can tell you exactly it is twenty four hundred dollars he gets two hundred dollars a month alison made no reply and mrs wolf continued that's a princely sum isn't it i should think it was sufficient for two persons said alison coldly it depends on how they live have you any idea of the price of that tea-gown that madeline wore to-day no i'm not good at such things it certainly didn't cost a cent less than six hundred dollars and it was probably nearer a thousand there were yards of the most superb chinchilla on it and it was from Calo. a third of your yearly income on one tea-gown is rather extravagant don't you think she evidently has an income of her own began alison and was about to change the subject when her companion cut in she not a cent oh really mrs wolf i think you are mistaken 
i have heard that they had a very beautiful home and her father probably makes her an allowance do tell me about all these places that we are passing you know i am a stranger and i am so interested in new york these houses must be the homes of all sorts of interesting people you can't tell me anything about madeline's family replied mrs wolf viciously entirely ignoring the balance of alison's speech she might just as well have said you can't get me off of this subject for such was actually the case because of hold-ups in the crowded afternoon traffic the ride was a slow one and during the whole of it alison was never once able to divert her i know all about the nortons my husband has done a great deal of business with mr norton and it is in that way that i know the daughters so well they always wanted to make a great show and for years the father had to spend more than he should and now the end has come he's down and out gone to smash failed oh i'm sorry to hear that it must be awfully hard to begin life over again when you are well along in years well that being the case how do you suppose madeline chapley gets her clothes and her trips do you know the ridiculous taradiddle that she tells her husband that felice the big modiste on fifth avenue you know dresses her for nothing just because of her figure and the advertisement she makes for the establishment as if felice needed that kind of advertising ed shapley is a poor fool probably it is true said alison i know one of the first places i ever went with mrs shapley was to see a parade of mannequins at felice's and she gave several orders of course she did and immediately afterwards was ordered to atlantic city for her health and friends of mine saw her down there with that rich doctor who is so crazy about her they stayed at the same hotel and went out together in a double wheeled chair all the time and really mrs wolf interrupted alison mrs shapley is my friend i cannot discuss her in this way oh here we are at my door tell your man please that this is the house right over this shop thank you so very much for the ride you must come and see me said mrs wolf very cordially thank you you are very good good night and she ran upstairs phil was out the fire was bright and it wasn't worth while to take off her hat as it would soon be time to go to dinner so loosening her wraps the girl sat down in the firelit darkness and gave herself to thought save oh save me from my friends was the burden of her mental song but much as she disliked mrs wolf she couldn't help dwelling on what she said nor remembering with startling distinctness that doctor's long visit last december then she began to reflect how lumbering and heavy she herself felt in such conversations she couldn't join in and the others wouldn't let her stay out and her excuses and efforts at turning the subject sounded stiff and awkward both her taste and principles were offended and she was self-conscious and uncomfortable from first to last it had never been so at home but then of course the family atmosphere had been different and in local society there had always been marked deference shown to terry preferences you couldn't judge by coningsboro well at cousin mary's it hadn't been so she had never once had to think of herself nor to make a conscious effort everything just flowed but she immediately remembered that cousin mary was a relation 
and that the same blood therefore ran in their veins perhaps that made a difference suddenly there flashed into her mind the expression a fish out of water and with the thought came the picture of a poor gasping flapping convulsive thing panting for its natural element and growing weaker with each gasp that was what she was with mrs shapley and her ilk she was a fish out of water next came that thought which was becoming almost her obsession masks what masks she had been viewing mrs shapley wore one mrs wolf wore one possibly every guest at that party except she herself had worn one this she said in all honesty for it was an odd fact that at that time alison howland failed to realize that her own mask that afternoon had been just as thick as any other her actual thoughts and feelings just as carefully concealed sometime in february phil and al keppner went off to boston together to spend two or three days an important new piece was to be tried out there and the celebrated dramatic critic must be on hand phil went with him by his invitation alison was not asked whether she minded being left alone her husband advised her to go out to some restaurant and get her heavy meal in the middle of the day and then to have supper and a cup of tea at home in the evening she promised to follow this sensible plan and he went off radiant it was his first real holiday since his marriage alison couldn't help wondering what would happen if she should be taken ill in the apartment it boasted no telephone and she had not a real friend in the whole of the great city the mortimers were at aiken and the gansevoorts were in florida but as she reminded herself she was never ill and three days was not a very long time the first evening of her solitude she had a call from mr ferris ferris was the man whose intimacy with the influential mr maxon was considered such an asset he was also the protector of the sweet little thing whom phil howland had suggested to his wife as a desirable friend and companion ferris had not been to the howlands for a long time and if she must be interrupted alison was glad that he was the one to do it he was the only man with decent manners who ever entered her house this time he had come with a specific object to invite the howlands to a restaurant dinner the following evening it was the first invitation he had ever extended to them oh i am so sorry cried alison we should have loved to come i'm sure but my husband is in boston with mr keppner and won't be returning for several days what a perfect shame and i have just succeeded in capturing that wary bird maxon he's as elusive as a girl and i know that howland is no end anxious to meet him he is indeed couldn't you possibly defer the dinner for a few days mr ferris this boston trip is not going to last long and i know mr howland will be terribly disappointed he has been looking forward to this chance for so long yes and it's the last one he'll have for a long time maxon is just on the eve of sailing for bermuda he'll be gone for the balance of the winter i never knew of anything so provoking i'd telegraph my husband i know he'd be only too glad to return for the occasion but i haven't the slightest idea of his address he didn't tell me where he would be stopping i don't think he knew himself well it is certainly hard luck my sister and her husband are coming 
and I thought that with them and you two and Maxon we should make a very jolly party, rather a preponderance of the stern sex, but as long as there were two of you I thought that you and Blanche wouldn't mind, and now she won't have a soul to keep her in countenance. I wish you'd come just the same and meet her. I know that you would like each other, won't you? Please do. It would never have occurred to the girl to accept, except for the fact that Mr. Maxon would be there. She was not one of those women who are always trying to pull wires in their husband's behalf, and who usually succeed in messing things up disgustingly. Alison Howland was no would-be wire-puller. Even if she went to this dinner, she would not try to capture for Phil an offer from the great Mr. Maxon nor would she seek so to captivate that gentleman that he would want to see her again. She merely thought in a vague way that since her husband was doomed to miss the great opportunity he had so long been seeking, it might be better for her to show up and to make the name of Howland mean something to Mr. Maxon. Simply make it stand out from the crowd. He might notice that, well, that she wasn't a nobody, and that might predispose him later in Phil's favor. By great good luck something might even be said about Phil's hopes, and she could say how glad her husband would be if there were any chance of an opening, and the presence of Ferris's sister would make everything correct. "'Won't you come, Mrs. Howland?' repeated Mr. Ferris. "'Blanche, that is Mrs. Bonner, will be so glad to know you, and you will save my party from disaster. You are quite sure that your sister is coming?' "'Naturally.' Should I be asking you to meet her otherwise? And Mr. Maxon is an equal certainty? Yes, I've caught him at last, I think. Don't think me rude, Mr. Ferris, begged the girl. I should love to come, but unless I were sure of your sister's presence, I should be forced to decline, of course. As it is, I shall be delighted to accept. At what time am I expected? At eight o'clock, if that suits you. Perfectly. And where is your party to be? at Victor's. He watched her narrowly as he said this, but the name meant nothing to her as he immediately discovered. I'm too sorry, Mrs. Howland, that you'll have to come up alone. I shall send a carriage for you, and I should certainly come for you myself, except for my other guests. Why, I shouldn't dream of such a thing. As for the carriage, thank you very much, but I shall of course order one for myself, and I shall be delighted to meet you at Victor's at eight o'clock. Oh, and just where is Victor's, though I suppose my driver will know. Yes, certainly he will know, but he gave the address. And now, laughed Alison, I am going to prove to you my ignorance. I don't know much about parties in smart restaurants. Shall I wear a hat and a high light frock, or an evening gown? An evening gown, unless you prefer the other. Dear me, no. I only want to be correct, and not to disgrace you. I'm sure it will be a perfect party. Ferris lingered only a little while. She appreciated his tact, and he talked very charmingly during the few moments that he remained. Alison quite looked forward to the party, and though she wished repeatedly that Phil could have been on hand, she thought it was quite fortunate that they had not both been out of town. She reached Victor's almost on the stroke of eight, and found a very handsome and very voluble host awaiting her. She was immediately struck by his volubility. He talked very fast. Am I the first? she demanded, looking around. Yes. Shall we go upstairs? 
Oh, we are not dining down here? No, it is nicer on the floor above. But don't you want to await the rest of your guests here? No, I think we will go up. She ascended with him, and they were shown to a private room. The moment the door was opened, she saw a table set for two. She stood stock still outside the door. This is not our table, she said. Yes, it is. I've had all sorts of bad luck with my guests, Mrs. Howland. Come and sit down and let me tell you about it. Not here, she said. In fact, Mr. Ferris, since your party has fallen through, I think it would be better for me to go home if you will call me a carriage. Mrs. Howland, you certainly will do no such a thing as that. With my dinner all ordered and just because my well-laid plans have gone astray. She honestly didn't know what to do. She couldn't decide whether or not he was telling the truth. Perhaps, after all, he was. And as she was a married woman, there could be nothing abnormal in her dining with him. But not in that room. That went without saying. If it won't upset your arrangements to dine downstairs, she said slowly, I will stay, if you really wish it. I should think, though, that you would much rather give your party some other time. You would think nothing of the sort he replied in a very low voice. Must it be downstairs? Again she was tempted to run away, but not really knowing what was best to do, she replied to his question. Most certainly, downstairs or nowhere. As they went down, she said, Where is your sister? Ill, he replied. And Mr. Maxon? Date with a lady. Now here we are. Where will you sit? They selected a table, and Ferris helped her to take off her cloak. She felt his hand touch the back of her neck, and she drew quickly away. It might, however, have been accidental. God, you look beautiful, he whispered as they took their seats. She started to rise. Sit still, he commanded in a low tone, and without raising his voice one iota, he began precipitately to make the maddest love she had ever heard. Before he had gone far, she was on her feet and picking up her cloak. Her host seized her arm and ordered her to sit down, but she shook off his hand and, with trembling fingers, fastened the clasp at her neck. Beckoning a waiter, she told him to order her a cab. I'm coming with you, said Ferris brutally. You are not, she replied, and without a glance or a farewell word, she went from the room and into the waiting cab giving the driver the address even as she opened the door. Safe at home, she had no companion but her thoughts, and they were poor company. Are all men beasts? she kept asking herself. Do they all jump into this sort of thing with no warning, no preamble of any kind? Do they think they can take a woman by main force? They are savages, cavemen, animals, vile, filthy animals. And then another thought struck her. Ferris's mask. How snugly it had fitted, how impenetrable it had proven, until that moment when he had chosen to raise it. Phil came home the next morning, in high good humor. He and Kepner had had a glorious time. They had met Ferris on their way to the station, the day they had left, and had tried to persuade him to go with them to Boston, but he had declined. They had met him in the morning, and he had come to her in the evening of the same day, with his trumped-up tale of hoping to find her husband. She told Phil the whole disgusting story. Good Lord! Ferris! 
Well, I'll be damned, was his sole comment. But he looked at her queerly. A little later he asked, Had you any idea that Ferris was sweet on you? Would I have gone with him if I had? she demanded hotly. Certainly I hadn't. After still another pause, Phil said, I suppose this cooks my goose with that Maxon job. You never had any goose to cook, replied Alison sharply. Can't you see that Mr. Ferris's repeated excuses were all lies? He had no intention of doing anything for you. No, that's true, very likely not. I don't even feel certain that he knows Mr. Maxon very well. Well, if I could be sure of that, there'd be nothing to worry over. Nothing to worry over? nothing to worry over in the fact that his wife had been trapped into a tete-a-tete -a -tete and insulted when captured. Evidently such things didn't shock Phil. Probably he was accustomed to them. Alison even imagined that she had gained a little luster in his eyes. What sort of a place is Victor's? she presently asked. Rotten, he replied, and thus dismissed the subject. The sole result of the adventure was that Ferris never again entered the Howlands' door. For that, Alison gave him a grudging credit. He was as horrible as Kepner. He had insulted her as grossly, but he had, at least, his pride. He did not lay himself open to a second rebuff. End of Book 2 Chapter 5